Amen. All right, well, we're there in Luke chapter number 19, and we've been going through this series this summer. It's been our summer series, The Encounters with Christ, and we've been uh, listening in on conversations that the Lord Jesus Christ has uh, had with individuals. And I, I've told you this, I think, every week, but we've, we've not been focusing on parables. We, maybe we'll do that next summer. And we haven't been focusing on miracles, but we'll do that at another time. We've been just, just been focusing on these conversations. We've been flies on the wall, just listening in to the conversations and the encounters that Christ has had with individuals. And I think when you do that, it might teach you a lot about Jesus and how he's very different than you and I and the way he deals with people, and the way he cares for people. And this is now the seventh uh, sermon in the series. It's the last sermon. We'll finish this up, and then we'll uh, go on to something else. If you remember, we started with uh, learning about Nicodemus, and we talked about the woman at the well. We talked about the woman caught in adultery. We talked about Jesus in the house of Simon, the rich young ruler, Mary and Martha. And then today, we are dealing with this very well-known, very famous story of Zacchaeus. And what I'd like to do uh, this morning, just kind of give you some things to think about, give you some things to consider in regards to this encounter. And if you're taking notes, you can maybe write these things down. I'd encourage you to take notes on the back of your course of the week. There's a place for you to write down some notes. And I just want to give you some thoughts, three, three thoughts in regards to uh, Zacchaeus in this story. The first one is this, if you'd like to write down. The first thing we see is the condition of Zacchaeus before salvation. The condition of Zacchaeus before salvation. And you really need to understand his condition to get the context of the story. The first thing is that Zacchaeus was a publican. Notice there in Luke 19 and verse 1, the Bible says, And Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, which was of the chief of among the, and I want you to notice this word, the publicans, all right? He was a man named Zacchaeus, which was the chief among the publicans, and he was rich. So I want you to notice that Zacchaeus was a publican. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to be a publican? And Zacchaeus was a publican, which means that he was a tax collector. Now, keep your place there in Luke 19. That's our text for this morning. But go back just a few chapters to Luke chapter 5, and let's look at another well-known publican in uh, the New Testament that also became a follower of Christ. Luke chapter 5, and notice verse number 27. Luke five twenty-seven. the Bible says this, Luke 5, 27, and after these things, he went forth and saw a publican. So notice Jesus went forth and he saw a publican named Levi. And of course, we know this is Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom. And he said unto him, follow me. So we notice that Levi, who's Matthew, who wrote the gospel according to Matthew, was also a publican and he was uh, sitting at the receipt of custom. What's a custom? A custom is a tax or a fee paid to the government. So these publicans, they were tax collectors, and that's what Zacchaeus was. He was a publican, which means he was a tax collector. But Zacchaeus was no mere tax collector. He was the chief of the tax collectors. He was the the main guy in charge of the tax collectors. Luke 19, go back to it. uh, Look at verse number 2. Luke chapter 19 and verse 2. Notice what the Bible says. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus... Notice, which was the chief among the publicans. So he wasn't just a publican, he was the chief among the publicans. He wasn't just a publican, but he was the boss of the publicans. And here's what you need to understand. Throughout the Bible, the publicans are associated with sinners. They're looked at bad people. And that's not really hard to think because today, how many people are a fan of the IRS, right? 
I mean, you know, being a tax collector is not the most, uh, is not the position uh, that's going to get you the most fans or the most uh, people admiring you. And that's what Zacchaeus was. He was a tax collector. And these people were often looked down on. And, and we can look at a lot of references. I'm not going to take the time to do it this morning. But let, let's just run a few just to show you. Uh, you're there in Luke 19. Go back to Luke 15. Look at verse 1. Luke 15 and verse 1. The Bible says this, Then drew near unto him, Luke 15, 1, Then drew near unto him all the, notice how these terms are just put together, publicans and sinners to hear him. So it's like they get their own, they get their own category. They're like a special type of sinner. You've got all the normal sinners, and then you've got the publicans and sinners for to hear him. Look at Luke chapter uh, 7 and verse 34. Notice what the Bible says. Luke chapter 7 and verse 34, the Bible says this, The Son of Man is come, eating and drinking, and ye say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a wine-bibber, a friend, notice how it's stated, of publicans and sinners. Look at Luke chapter 5 and verse 30. Luke chapter 5 and verse 30, the Bible says this, But their scribes and Pharisees murmured against his disciples, saying, Why do ye eat and drink? Notice what they said, with publicans and sinners. So I want you to notice that these publicans, they got their own category of being a, a really bad brand of sinners. And this is who Zacchaeus was. He was a publican. He was a tax collector. And these people were looked down upon throughout the Bible. And this phrase is a common phrase. I just showed you a few in Luke. We could look at, we could look at the same phrase throughout the other Gospels. He was called publicans and, they were called publicans and sinners. Publicans and sinners. Here's another phrase that we're not going to look up, but we, I could show you, uh, you know, several references where they're called, where, where the group that Jesus is ministering to, they're referred to as publicans and harlots. So again, they're, they're either called publicans and sinners, or they're called publicans and harlots, and the idea is this, that there is not, being associated with a publican is not a good association, because he was a publican, that was a bad thing, people looked down upon them, they say, oh, there go the publicans and harlots, there go the publicans and sinners, there are the bad, bad people. Now, here's what you need to understand, why is it that Zacchaeus was hated by the people? And we understand that being a tax collector is already going to put you in a place where people aren't going to like you, but there but, but you need to understand that people hated Zacchaeus. Go back to Luke chapter 19. Look at verse number 7. Luke chapter 19 and verse 7. And we're going to go through the whole story verse by verse in its context. But just kind of as I lay the foundation, I want you to notice these things. Luke 19 and verse 7, the Bible says this. And when they saw it, this is, what did they see? They saw that Jesus is going to go have dinner with Zacchaeus who's a publican and a sinner, right? And when they saw it, they all murmured, saying that he, talking about Jesus, was gone to be guest with a man that is a sinner. So notice, they're looking at Zacchaeus and saying, that's a bad guy. Jesus is going to go have dinner with a bad guy. That guy's a sinner. Doesn't he know he's a publican? And here's what I want you to know. The publicans, and Zacchaeus particularly, because of the fact that he was the chief of the publicans, were hated by the people. And you say, well, why were they hated? Well, remember I told you that they were tax collectors, right? But it's worse than that. It's not just that they were tax collectors, but they were tax collectors for the Roman Empire. See, Zacchaeus was hated because he was a Jew who was working for the enemy. Luke 19, look at verse 8. Notice what the Bible says. And Zacchaeus stood and said unto uh, uh, the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. We'll come back to that verse in a second. Notice verse 9. And Jesus said unto him, This day salvation come to this house, for as much as he, talking about Zacchaeus, also is a son of 
of Abraham. So I want you to notice Zacchaeus was a descendant of Abraham. Zacchaeus was part of the nation of Israel. Zacchaeus was a Jew. He was an Israelite. But yet his job required him, his job required him to take taxes. And you say, oh yeah, I'd hate, you know, I wouldn't like my son working for the IRS. Well, the difference with that is that at least the IRS is taking taxes for our own nation. It'd be like if a country invaded the United States of America, and then we all had to pay taxes to that country, and then your son, who's an American, is working for them, taking money from our people to give it to the enemy. This is what Zacchaeus was doing. Zacchaeus was a tax collector, which is bad, but to make things worse, he was a tax collector for the enemy. He was a tax collector for the Roman Empire that was basically uh, uh, just ruling over the nation of Israel. But it gets worse. <laughs> not only is he a tax collector, and not only is he a tax collector for the enemy, but he's also stealing from the people. Notice what the Bible says in Luke 19:2. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, which was the chief among the publicans. That's bad enough. But then the Holy Spirit feels a need to tell us these four words about this chief among the publicans, and he was rich. And he was rich. So not only was he a tax collector, not only was he a tax collector for the enemy, but he was rich. You ask, well, how did Zacchaeus become rich? Well, he became rich the same way that all the other tax collectors became rich, by stealing from the people. In fact, by his own confession and admission. In verse 8, notice what he says. And Zacchaeus stood and said unto the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and I have taken, notice what he says, and if I have taken anything from any man, notice what he says, by false accusation, I restore him, Fourfold. Remember John, we won't turn there, but John the Baptist was preaching and people came to him and asked him, what should we do? And he's telling the soldiers, you should do this. And he's telling people, and he tells these people, he says, hey, only, only take from the people, he tells the publicans, only take from them what you ought to take. Because here's what the tax collectors would do. You would owe a certain amount to the Roman Empire. You know, let's just put it in our modern, uh, you know, days wages. And, you know, they might come to you and say, hey, you, you owe this quarter, you owe $600. But, and you knew you owed $600. But they might come and say, well, actually, you owe $900. And then they take the $900 from you, $600 would go to the Roman Empire, and they'd keep $300 for themselves. See, these people were tax collectors, which was bad. They were tax collectors for the enemy, which was worse. And then they were stealing from their own people, which made them completely hated by the people. So you can understand, when Jesus looks at Zacchaeus and says, hey, let's go have dinner, people are saying, why in the world is he going to have dinner with that man? That man, if there ever was a sinner, that man is a sinner. So you see the condition of Zacchaeus before salvation. And here's the truth. The condition of Zacchaeus before salvation is the same condition of everyone before salvation, and it's this. He was a sinner. And so were you. And so are you. So we see the condition of Zacchaeus before salvation. But I'd like you to notice, secondly, this morning, that we see the conversion of Zacchaeus for salvation. I want you to notice that Zacchaeus gets saved. And like we've done through these encounters with Christ, we see Jesus, the effective soul winner, the effective uh, soul winner, uh, reaching Zacchaeus with the gospel. And I want you to notice... What happens? Look at verse 3. And he, Zacchaeus, sought to see Jesus who he was. 
and could not for the press. So Zacchaeus wants to see Jesus, but there's a big crowd there, and he can't see him for the press because this is one of the reasons Zacchaeus is one of my favorite characters of the Bible, because he was little of stature, all right? In the Bible, you always got the short guy being the hero, and you always got the tall guy, Goliath, being the bad guy. I'm just pointing that out. I don't know what that means. There's a sermon. There's some sort of spiritual truth in there somewhere. Look at verse 4. And he ran before and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, and he was to, uh, for he was to pass that way. So here you got Zacchaeus, who's a short guy, I can relate. And he wants to see Jesus, but all the top people are in front of him, I can relate. And he uh, needs to figure out a way to get above so he can see Jesus, he wants to see Jesus pass by. So the Bible says he runs ahead and he climbs a sycamore tree to see him, for he was to pass uh, that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up, and saw him, and said unto him, Zacchaeus, make haste, and come down, for today I must abide at thy house. And when I was growing up, we used to sing a song about Zacchaeus. Who ever heard of the the children's song about Zacchaeus? Who knows it? Raise your hand. Man, not that many of you. Let's sing it together, all right? Let's learn it. If you don't know it, let's learn it. If you know it, help me sing it, all right? Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. You don't do this when you're a kid? And when the Savior passed that way, he looked up in the tree and said, Zacchaeus, come down from that tree. For I'm going to your house today. For I'm going to your house today. Who's ever heard that song before? Man, good night. Well, there's a famous song about Zacchaeus. And, you know, you sang it as a kid. And it's from this passage. Why? Because Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus, and he went, and he climbed up on a sycamore tree, and, he, uh, and when Jesus, verse 5, came to the place, he looked up and saw him. You say, what can we learn from this? Here's what we can learn. When it comes to the conversion of Zacchaeus for salvation, we really are looking at the effectiveness of Jesus and his soul winning. And you can write these statements down, especially if you're a soul winner, you should. I want you to notice that Jesus was seeking for those who were searching for him. Now, Jesus was seeking for everyone, but he was particularly interested in those that were searching for him. And you see that in this story, and you see that in many stories. Here you have Zacchaeus, who's running ahead, climbs up a tree. Now, look, when, I'm sure he's dressed very nice. He's a rich man. He's got a, 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 a career. He's got a, a, a job that would probably make him uh, uh, well-known because of the fact that of his reputation and the position that he held. And here, Jesus is walking on the road, and there's a press of people that want to see him. And Jesus looks up, and he sees a grown man climbing a tree, trying to get a look at him. And Jesus does something that most soul winners don't do. He notices the fact that this guy is particularly searching for him. We see that again when Jesus is walking through the press and a woman touches the hem of his garment and he stops everything and he says, who touched me? You say, why? Because there was a woman there. There was lots of people there, but there was a woman there that was particularly seeking. And Jesus, we see his effectiveness. You say, why was Jesus so effective in his outreach and his owning? One reason was this, because he was seeking for those who were already searching for him. Now look, it's our job to preach the gospel to the whole world, to the uttermost part of the earth. 
We are to warn everyone, and we are to uh, uh, try to reach everyone with the gospel, give everyone the opportunity to be saved. But if you are a soul winner, your effectiveness will double and maybe even triple if you learn while you're out there to pay attention for those who may already be searching for Jesus. You say, well, we're knocking doors, we're trying to get the gospel to everybody. Yeah, but when people are already going out of their way, when someone's climbing a tree just to get a good look, Jesus could identify the fact, this guy's looking for something. This guy's searching for something. This guy uh, is, is wanting something. You say, well, how do you apply that um, in, our, in our day? Uh, you know, we're not Jesus, people aren't coming around trying to get a good look at us as we're walking. Well, you know, here's a great way to apply it physically, and I'll give you the, real, uh, uh, the, the main application in a second. But sometimes when you're out soul winning and you're walking down the road, this happened to me before, you're walking down the road, you know, and, and someone's coming your way. You know, usually when, uh, when someone's coming your way, you kind of make eye contact with them, maybe smile at them, you start approaching them, they start going the other way, you know, across the street, they don't want to talk to you. How about when someone is like going out of their way to like approach you? I mean, I've had that happen to me where someone's like crossing the street, coming this way. They're looking at, you know, some soul winners are like, ah, you know, they go get back in their car and lock the door or something. <laughs> hey, look, if someone's going out of their way to talk to you, they might be searching for something. And look, as a soul winner, you need to have, uh, you need to pray that the Holy Spirit would help you to just kind of be sensitive to know when people might be searching, when people might be seeking. See, Jesus was seeking for everyone, but he was specifically searching and sensitive for those who might already be searching for him. Now, let me just give you three areas where you as a soul winner, and look, if you're not a soul winner, you should be, but if you're not, even just as a, uh, as, as a Christian who maybe you're dealing with a co-worker, or maybe you've got a neighbor, a family member, a friend, and, and, and you're not sure, you know, uh, they're talking to you, and you're like, what is this about? Let me give you three areas that you need to just write these down, you need to memorize these, you need to just have these in a little three-by-five card in your soul winning Bible or whatever. Three areas, because I've seen soul winners just kind of, these flags come up, People wave these flags, and they just kind of oversee it. They don't acknowledge it. They ignore it. And that is not what Jesus would do. Jesus was seeking for all, but especially for those who might already be searching for him. You say, well, how can I identify those that might already be searching for Jesus? Well, let me give you the three T's, all right? Number one, listen for people telling you that they are in trouble. When your coworker... You know, if you're doing a good job at living the Christian life, you're not a bragger, hopefully. You're not being boastful. But hopefully people can look at you and realize there's something different about this guy. There's something different about this individual. You know, your family members, your friends, your neighbors, they ought to be able to look at you and say, hopefully people around you know that you're a Christian. Hopefully people around you know that you're a believer. Hopefully people around you know that there's something different about you. And when you've got a coworker or a neighbor or a family member or somebody walking up to you or calling you or texting you and they're bringing and they're telling you, hey, I, we're having marriage problems. I'm having some problems with my kids. I, you know, CPS is involved, whatever, you know, whatever they're telling you, I, I, I'm going through a bankruptcy or, you know, uh, I'm having this issue or that issue or this health issue. Look, as a soul winner, you need to be listening when people start to communicate to you that they are in trouble. That is the equivalent of them getting up on a tree and saying, I need help. I'm looking, I'm searching. And I don't know how many times I've been sewing with somebody and they're knocking on a door. Hi, we're coming from Verity Baptist Church. Oh man, wow. You know, I've been thinking about going. I'm going through a divorce right now. I've been thinking about going to church. Well, we'd love for you to come by and visit. Have a good day. And they just walk up. 
I'm like, good night. This person is telling you they need help. They're searching. They're looking. So look, make sure you're ready to hear that. You say, what do we look for? You look for someone telling you they are in trouble. Here's another one. You look for someone telling you they're in transition. They're in transition. When someone is expressing to you that they are in transition, that is a very good time, that is a very good place, that is a very good uh, indicator that they are searching for something and that they need something. You say, what does that mean? When somebody's getting married, when somebody's having children, when somebody's having grandchildren, when somebody's maybe, they're, they're moving houses, or they're moving careers, they're getting a new job. Whenever somebody's in transition, that is a very good time to take your little family and friend day invitation and say, I'd like to invite you to church. Because at those times of transition is when you are likely to get someone plugged in, when you're likely to get somebody saved, when you're likely to get somebody plugged into church. By the way, let me say this, during times of transition is also when people are likely to get backsliding and get plugged out of church. So look, if you're, you're saying, oh, Pastor, I'm getting ready to change my career, be careful. I'm getting ready to go into surgery, be careful. I'm getting ready to uh, uh, you know, buy a new house, be careful. We're getting ready to have another child. Be, be careful, praise the Lord for it, but be careful because during those times of transition, during those times of transition is when people will sometimes get plugged in, get connected, or when people will get plugged out and get disconnected. And in those times of transitions, those of us that are there to help and love people should try to help people and say, hey, we're, lo- we're praying for you, we're here for you. Hey, yeah, the, I think things aren't going well in life. Let's get you plugged into church. You're having a major transition. You just got married. Praise the Lord. You know what you and your new spouse should do? Come to church. You just had a child, praise God. You know what your young family needs? A good church. You had to be looking. See, Jesus was looking for people who were looking for him. He was seeking those who were searching him. And as soul winners, we need to be careful that we are paying attention and that we are sensitive. You say, how do people tell us? What's the spiritual equivalent of somebody climbing up a sycamore tree and saying, I'm here, I'm searching, I'm looking? Well, number one, when they are expressing to you that they are in trouble. Number two, when they are expressing to you that they are in transition. Number three, when they are expressing to you that they desire teaching. If so, you knock on a door... Hi, we're coming from Verity Baptist Church. And they're like, ah, oh, you know, I've, I've been thinking about getting church, and I'd really like to know what the Bible says. I've had people say that to me. Or I've had people say, yeah, I've been thinking about going to a new church because the church I go to, I just feel like I'm not learning. I've had people say that to me. You know, if somebody's telling you, hey, I'm interested, I want to learn, I want to know what the Bible says, you need to, a little flag needs to go up and say, hey, you should come to Verity Baptist Church. Because you know what? one thing, you know, at Verity Baptist Church, people may not be that impressed with our facilities. You know, I think this is a great building. I look around, I think this is awesome. I think this is nice. I think this is beautiful. You know, but being uh, next to the welfare, welfare office might not be the most impressive thing. I get that, you know. Uh, so people might not be impressed with our facility. I think our music's great, but some people just, they're not into the old hymns. You know, I think our choir's great. I think the orchestra's awesome, but some people are just not into that. You know, our big thing might not be our children's ministry because it's non-existent. You know, because we're family integrated. Our, may, our big thing may not be, but I will tell you this. If someone wants to learn the Bible, they can learn the Bible in heavy doses at Verity Baptist Church. So if someone is expressing to you like, man, I just feel like I'm not learning. I'd like to know more. Or they're expressing to you, man, I'd like to learn about being a better father. I'd like to learn about being a better husband, a better wife, a better mother. I'd like to learn more about finance. I'd like, well, they're expressing to you their desire to be trained, to be taught. Hey, have a little flag go up and say, you are someone that is already searching for something. 
And isn't that true that many of you showed up here because you were searching for something? You didn't even know what you were searching. You were looking up all these conspiracy theories on YouTube. (laughs) But that eventually brought you to the place where you found the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ and salvation. So look, Zacchaeus, you said, what made Jesus so effective? Jesus was seeking for those who were already searching for him. And in my life and in your life, as we are going through this life, and as we're going through this journey, and as we're ministering to people, and, and, and living life with people, whether it's out with a stranger knocking their door, or it's someone you work with, someone you're uh, related to, someone that is in your sphere of life, you need to be listening for people telling you they're in trouble, they're in transition, or they desire teaching. Secondly, I want you to notice that Jesus was very effective. Not only because Jesus was seeking for those that were seeking for him, but Jesus was very effective because Jesus was reaching for those who, were, who no one else was concerned about. Again, we already saw the fact that Zacchaeus was a bad dude. Nobody liked him. And for good reason. I wouldn't like him. You know, for good reason. I mean, he's a tax collector. He's a tax collector for the enemy. And he's lying. And he's getting rich off of stealing from his own people. And again, look at it again. Luke 19, verse 6. He made haste and came down and received them joyfully. And when they saw it, they all murmured, saying that he, Jesus, was gone to be guest with a man that is a sinner. And I hope you've noticed as we've gone through this series on Encounters for Christ that this is a common theme for Jesus. He's constantly reaching out to those who people are not concerned with. He's constantly reaching out for those who don't have their act together, who've got issues, who've got problems. Go back to Luke chapter 5. Look at verse 31. Luke chapter 5, verse 31. Luke 5, 31. Remember, we, we saw this with Levi. Remember Matthew? He was a publican as well. Notice people criticized Jesus for reaching out to Levi. Here was his response, Luke 5, 31. And Jesus answering said unto them, They that are whole need not a physician, but they that are sick... I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. See, you say the the people that are most, you know, probably willing to get saved and get plugged in, they're going to be the people who are in trouble, who are in transition, who require training. You say, well, well, what's the problem with that? Here's the problem with that. When you reach out to people that are in trouble, you're reaching out to people with issues. And let me just help you out, soul winner. You say, oh, I'd, I'd like to be the type of soul winner that not only gets people saved, but I want to, and I think this should be the, the goal for every soul winner, I want to be the type of soul winner that gets people saved, gets people in church, gets them baptized, gets them in discipleship, helps them to grow, helps them to learn. I want to have a convert sitting next to me, someone that I reach, someone that's, that's living the Christian life, not just someone I got saved out there, but someone that's walking the Christian life. Well, here's the problem with that, and here's what you need to understand, and please get this. You say, why is it that most soul winners don't have that? Why is it that most soul winners, and I'm not down on Verity Baptist Church, I love this church, I think there's the greatest church in the world, and we've got some of the greatest and finest soul winners in the world, but even at Verity Baptist Church, our 80 to 90 soul winners, most of them could never say that they've had someone baptized, that they got saved. You say, why? Because that requires work. Because it's easy to knock on a door, preach the gospel, pray a prayer, and leave. But when you have someone who's having car problems, who's having job problems, who's having marriage problems, who's having work problems, you may have to go pick them up for church. Are you willing to do that? And here's all I'm telling you. Here's all I'm saying. 
is if you want to have the stories, if you want to have the stories of when I met this guy, his life was a mess, and I got him saved, and I got him in church, now he's got a job, now he's cleaned up, now he's uh, serving the Lord, now look at how God is using him. If you want to have that story, which I hope all of us would want to have, we have to realize there's work that goes into that story. Right. Say, no, 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 I want the guy who I can get him saved, and he's already a millionaire, and he picks me up in his car and brings me to church. Well, here's the problem. That guy's probably not going to listen to you. But the guy with problems, he'll listen. The guy with problems, he needs somebody to care. So Jesus, you say, why was Jesus so effective? Because remember, they kept saying, why is he always with the publicans and the sinners? Why is he always with the publicans and the harlots? Why? Because Jesus was seeking for those who were searching for him, and Jesus was reaching out for those who others were not concerned about. He said, they that are whole, they that are whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. And you know what I hope? You know what I hope for our church? Is that we would be a church that is compassionate and would look out at people whose maybe life has been hard, life has been tough, they've made some decisions that were not good, that's brought them to a place where they're in trouble, where they're in need, where they're in transition, where they're not really sure what's going to happen and how things are going to go, and that some of our soul winners will come alongside them, get them saved, love on them, help them, pray for them, uh, spend time with them, bring them to church, invest in them. You say, why was it? Why was it that Jesus was so effective? Because Jesus was seeking for those that were searching for him. Because Jesus was reaching out for those who were, uh, no one else was concerned about. But let me give you a third one. Also, because Jesus was investing in those who were receptive. Notice verse 5. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said unto him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down. For today, notice what Jesus says, For today I must abide at thy house. Look, and I'm not against this. I'm not against this. But you know what Jesus was? He wasn't saying, Zacchaeus, come down. Because I want to leave you with this DVD. Have a good day. And I'm not against that. I want to leave you with this Bible. See you later. I'm not, and I'm not against that, but I'm telling you, Jesus invested his time. Hey, when's the last time you said, hey, I'd like to take you out for lunch? When's the, some of you need to take your little family and friendly invitation because you know somebody. The Holy Spirit has been telling you about somebody who's in trouble or in transition or they're retiring training. And you need to walk up to him and say, hey, I'd like to invite you out for family and friend day. And maybe we can get coffee before the service. I'll pick you up. Let's go grab a cup of coffee. Let's go to church. They're having lunch. Here's what I'm telling you. If you want to be effective, it's going to take work. Amen. It's going to require you going out of your way. And I'm not down on you if all you do is knock doors. I'm not. That's great. Praise the Lord. But effective soul winners, take it a step further. Jesus was investing in those who were receptive. Go to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. If you, if you keep your place, if, if, if you find the T-books, they're all clustered together. First, second Thessalonians, 1st, 2nd Timothy, Titus, Titus chapter 3. You know what's interesting to me? Is that Jesus invested his time in those who were receptive. Right? Remember the rich young ruler? He shuts him down. Oh, you're so, you think you're so good? Okay, whatever. And he tells, he tells, we'll sell everything you've got and give it to the poor. Oh, I'm not interested. Okay, have a good day. But you know, this guy who was receptive, he said, hey, let's go have dinner. Let's go have lunch. For today, I must abide at thy house. Today, I must abide at thy house. You know, the problem with most homeowners is this. They spend the most amount of time with people who are not receptive. Because here's the truth. 
the last time you spent an hour, and I'm not mad at you, I'm just, I, and, I, and I don't even know this, but I, if I had to take a guess, I would say the last time that you as a soul winner spent an hour with someone that wasn't even saved, you were probably arguing with them. Isn't that true? Last time you spent an hour, last time you spent an hour and a half, last time you spent two hours with someone who wasn't saved, engaged the conversation with someone who wasn't saved, you were probably arguing with a Jehovah's Witness. You were probably arguing with a Mormon. You were probably arguing with a Muslim. The Bible says, Titus 3.10, a man that is an heretic after the first and second admonition rejects. You know what's funny? You know what Jesus did? He spent an hour. You said Zacchaeus wasn't even saved yet. He spent an hour with the guy that was searching for him. That was in trouble. That needed somebody to spend time with him. See, why was Jesus so effective? Jesus was so effective because he invested his time into those that were receptive. Why are we so ineffective? Because we usually waste our time with those who should just be rejected. A man that is an heretic after the first and second admonition. Reject. Keep your place there in Titus. We're probably going to come back to it. But go back, go back to, to Luke. Luke chapter 19. We're looking at the story of Zacchaeus. Ten verses. A lot in there, isn't there? What do we see first? The condition of Zacchaeus before salvation. What was his condition? He was a sinner. He was the chief of the sinners. He was unpopular, unliked, unlovable. Someone that we would all love to hate. But yet Jesus said, no, I'm going to spend time with that guy. We see the conversion of Zacchaeus. What was it? Why was it? Because Jesus was searching for those who were searching for him. Because Jesus was investing in those who were receptive. Because Jesus was reaching out to those who others were not concerned with. Let me give you the third point this morning. We see the climax of Zacchaeus' salvation. Zacchaeus' story is sometimes used to promote a false doctrine, a false belief. And I want to show that to you. In Luke chapter 19 and verse 8, the Bible says this, and Zacchaeus stood. Remember, Jesus went to his house. And then when Jesus comes, he receives him joyfully. Verse 8, the Bible says, And Zacchaeus stood and said unto the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. And Jesus said unto him, This day salvation come to this house, for as much as he also is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And people will look at the story and they'll say, See, at the time of salvation, there better be a change. At the time of salvation, there will always be a change. And people will even say, I don't believe in work salvation. I don't believe you have to earn your salvation. But the story of Zacchaeus proves, the story of Zacchaeus proves that when somebody gets saved, there will be works that follow. This is the, 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 the false doctrine that people will teach from the story of Zacchaeus. Now keep your place there. Go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. You're there in Luke. You're going to go John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians. Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians. I've taught you this before. I'll, I'll say it again. When you study the Bible, one of the rules of Bible study is that you must always take the statements over the stories. The Bible is filled with two different things. Stories, narratives, things were told happen, and then we're given clear statements. Well, we're just being directed, we're being taught by clear statements. When you study the Bible, please understand this, when you study the Bible, you must always take the statements over the story. 
You say, why is that? Because in those stories, we're not given every little detail of every little thing that happened. For example, we, we are told that Jesus goes to have dinner with Zacchaeus, and then we're told that Zacchaeus is giving away all this money, but we're not told what actually Jesus said to it. Like the woman at the well, where we actually see Jesus presenting the gospel, we don't see that in the story. We're just told afterwards that he got saved. So when, you, when, when you're studying the Bible, and when you're, you're figuring out doctrine, be very careful. And look, you will find that the people who try to teach false doctrine, like you can lose your salvation, like repent of your sins, they'll often go to stories and say, well, see, look at this story. But, the, but that belief, based on that story, is in clear contradiction of a clear statement. So let's look at some clear statements in the Bible. And let's, let's just talk about this. Does the story of Zacchaeus prove that works will follow salvation? Because here's what people will say. They'll say, oh, no, you don't have to work your way to heaven. Works are not part of salvation, but once you get saved... There will be works. And they'll cite stories like Zacchaeus. But let's look at some clear statements and see, is that true? Does the Bible teach that every Christian that gets saved will have works? So that's what they're saying, isn't it not? They say works will follow salvation. That means there, there cannot be a Christian that does not have works. There cannot be a Christian that does not have works. Let's see if that's true. 1 Corinthians 3, look at verse 13. Now here's why we're in 1 Corinthians 3. Because in 1 Corinthians 3, we are reading about the judgment seat of Christ, and we are reading about the judgment that is going to come upon believers, where believers will be judged for the works that they did for Jesus, okay? They're not being judged in order to receive salvation. These people are already saved. They're already in heaven. They're being judged for what rewards they'll get for the works that were done, all right? 1 Corinthians 3.13. Every man's work. Do you see that word there? If you don't mind writing in the Bible, you might want to underline or circle that word. Every man's work shall be made manifest. You see the word manifest? The word manifest means to make clear, readily visible. Here's what the Bible is saying. On that day, notice what he says. Every man's work shall be made manifest for the day shall declare it. What day? The day of judgment. The judgment seat of Christ on that day, that day of judgment, will make manifest, will make clear, will make readily visible every man's work. I mean, is that what it says? Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it, what's the it referring to? It's referring to every man's work, because it shall be revealed. What does the word revealed mean? It means to put on display, to make known. For it shall be revealed by fire, for the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. Okay, look, the Bible is clearly telling us here that on the judgment day, on the day of the judgment seat of Christ, every man's work is going to be made manifest, and every man's work shall be revealed. Notice verse 14. If any man's work abide... Because he's saying, God is saying, I'm going to take all your work and I'm going to prove it by fire. We didn't read the verses, but he's saying there's two different types of works. There's wood, hay, and stubble, and then there's, there's gold and silver and precious stones. He's saying some things are eternal, some things are, are not eternal, they're temporal. He says, I'm going to burn them up. I'm going to burn up everything you've ever done in your life, and we're going to see what you accomplished that had eternal value, that was done for God. Because there's some things you do that have no eternal value. I mean, is that true? Not, not sinful things, but just things that don't matter. 
Say, oh, I, I, I spent the, the week, you know, uh, working on my garden. Nothing in the world wrong with that. I think that's great. I think that's a great hobby to have. But just realize that working on your garden has no eternal value. It doesn't influence eternity one bit. I teach Little League. Well, if you teach Little League on Sundays, you need to get right with God and get in church. <laughs> you say, I teach Little League on Fridays. Praise the Lord. I don't know if there's anything wrong with that. But I will tell you this. If you're not preaching the gospel to those kids, you're doing things that have no eternal value. It's not bad. It's just there's nothing eternal of it. It's wood, hay, and stubble. God says, I'm going to take everything you've ever done. I'm going to burn it up. And on that day, I'm going to make every man's work manifest. I'm going to make every man's work revealed. Verse 14. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereon, he shall receive a reward. So here's what he's saying. I'm going to reward you for everything you did that had eternal value. You will receive reward. Verse 15. If any man's work shall be burned... He shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Now, what does that verse mean? He says, look, some people are going to get to the judgment of Christ. They're saved. God's going to put everything they ever did, put it in the fire, and it's all going to get burnt up. Turns out they did nothing that had eternal value. Well, what happened? Is that guy going to go to hell? Well, look at what it says. Verse 15, if any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. So look, in this very clear teaching about the judgment seat of Christ, is the Apostle Paul teaching us that it is possible for somebody to go to heaven who had no works at all? Well, that doesn't go with the story of Zacchaeus. Okay, that's a story. Here we have a clear statement. Well, I just believe that if somebody really gets saved, there will be works to follow. Well, if that's true, that would make this passage make no sense. Because according to this passage, somebody could be saved and have no works. Somebody's work can be burnt up and they'll suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved. Yes, so as by fire. In fact, there's some people who are going to get to heaven. They're going to have no rewards. There's going to be nothing that they ever accomplished for God, but at least they're in heaven. Go to Romans chapter 4. Let me give you another example. Romans, we're asking the question, is it possible for somebody to be saved and have no works? According to 1 Corinthians 3, it is. It's possible there will be people at the judgment seat of Christ who they're saved, but they did nothing for God. No works. Go to Romans chapter 4. Look at verse 4. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of death. Verse 5. But to him that worketh not. Okay, does it say, but to him that worketh a little bit? No. It says to him that worketh not. This guy did no works. Never went to church, never got baptized, never did anything. But to him that worketh not, but here's what he did do, believeth on him that justified the ungodly, his faith is counted to righteousness. So according to Romans 4 and 5, can someone believe on Jesus Christ and have not works? The answer is yes. So look, when we study the Bible, we need to allow the clear statements to guide our thinking and not take our doctrine from stories, from parables. Because if you look at the story of Zacchaeus, you might think, oh, well, look, anybody that gets saved, they're going to just, you know, repent of their sins, they're going to make everything right. But here's the thing, the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that you, it's possible for someone to believe and have no works. You say, well, then what's going on with Zacchaeus? Go to Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2. You're there in Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2. What's going on? Here's what you need to understand. And here's where people often get confused in regards to salvation. They don't realize that salvation, being born again, is just the beginning. 
God wants to save you and you get saved with no works. But once you are saved, God does desire for you to have works. Now, you say, well, what if I have no works? You're still saved. Works is not a condition for salvation before, during, or after, ever. But just because you can be saved and not have works doesn't mean that God doesn't want you to have works. Notice Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2 and 9 are, are two of our most clear verses that salvation is not of works, right? For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. is not something you produce. It's not something you do. It is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. Clear. It's a gift. You can't earn it. It's a gift. You don't pay for it. It's a gift. It's not of yourself. It's not of works. But then notice verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Walk in what? In good works. So you've got to understand this balance. Salvation is not of works. But once you get saved, God wants you to work. What if I don't work? You're still saved. You just get no rewards in heaven. Do you understand that? Oh, no, no. I believe, I believe that once somebody gets saved, there will always be works. Well, that puts you in contradiction with Romans 4. That puts you in contradiction with 1 Corinthians 3. That puts you in contradiction with a lot of passages in the Bible. Because salvation does not require works ever. But once you're saved, once you're a child of God, once you're a son of God, God does want you to work. But notice, we are his workmanship. He's working on you, not vice versa. You're not working on yourself, and you're not working on him. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good work. Go to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Look at verse 12. You're there in Ephesians? Just one book over. Philippians chapter 2. Look at verse 12. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Notice what the Bible says. Philippians 2, 12. Wherefore, my beloved... As ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Philippians 2.12, I want you to notice this phrase, very controversial phrase in the Bible. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. See, that verse proves that you have to work. But wait a minute, if you got one verse that kind of sounds like you have to work, and I just showed you multiple verses that say otherwise, look, either the Bible's wrong or you're wrong. And I'm going to put my money on the Bible. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Say, that means that you got to work your way to heaven. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Verse 13. For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. You say, what does that mean? Here's what it means. When you got saved, you got saved as a gift from God, not of works, not of yourselves. You don't earn it. You don't pay for it. You receive it as a free gift. But the moment you got saved, God went to work on you. And God is working in you. And that salvation happened on the inside, but God wants to work that thing out of you. And here's the thing. If it never comes out, you're still saved. But God wants, look, the climax of the Christian life, salvation is just the beginning. But the climax is when you become a mature, perfect Christian where you are saved and you're also walking in the works that were preordained by God for you. So understand that. And you say, well, what's going on with Zacchaeus? Here's what happens with Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus really is the exception, not the rule. Go back to Luke 19. Notice what the Bible says. And Zacchaeus stood and said unto the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give unto the poor. And if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. See, there are some people, I've known people like this, you know people like this, my wife was like this. 
There are some people that the day they get saved, their whole lives change. When my wife got saved, the day she got saved, she dropped out of college. She got, you know, rid of her pants. She started going to church three times a week. She started soul winning. She got rid of the bad music. Everything in her life changed. And, and you know people like that. You've known people that they got saved, they quit smoking, they got saved, they quit doing drugs, they got saved, they quit drinking. And look, praise the Lord for it, but they didn't get, it's not that those things happened because, you know, as a requirement for salvation. It's just God wants to work on you, and some people, the day they get saved, they just, there's a big change. Praise God! But that doesn't mean that because it happened to Zacchaeus, it's going to happen for everybody. Because most people, you know what happens to most people? We knock on their door, we get them saved, we walk away, and nobody's helping them. Nobody's ministering to them. They don't get connected in church, and they just go by their, their merry way, living their life. Those are probably the people that are going to get to heaven and be like, well, I have no works, but I'm saved. So just realize, here, you say, what happened with Zacchaeus? He got saved, and it changed his life. And look, praise God for it. And, we, and, and you say, what's the goal? Here's the goal, that everyone who gets saved has a life transformation. That's what we want for everybody. That's what we want for you. But if it doesn't happen, that doesn't mean you're not saved. See, we see the climax of Zacchaeus' life where he got right with God. He not only got right in salvation, but he got right in his life. He said, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. He said anything. Go, to, go back to Ephesians, if you wouldn't mind. Ephesians chapter 4. He says, if I've stolen from anyone, I'm going to give it back to him fourfold. He said, half of my goods, I don't even deserve half of these things. I'm going to give it to the poor. That has nothing to do with his salvation. Look, salvation, please get this. Salvation changes your destination. You were on your way to hell. You got saved. Now you're on your way to heaven. That's the only thing that changes when you get saved. When you begin to learn the Bible, study the Bible, apply the principles of God's Word, that will change your life. You say, what if somebody gets saved, now they're on their way to heaven, but they never begin to apply the things in the Bible? Then they're going to get to the judgment seat of Christ with no works. So, but here we see the climax is that he got saved. Let me just give you a quick, quick, uh, quick, quick application on, on this. Here's what we learn. Repenting of your sins is not required for salvation. I don't have the time to go into a big dissertation on repentance of your sins. I've done that before. Repentance is a change of mind. You don't have to repent of your sins to be saved. That's works. You do have to change your mind about who it is you're trusting or believing in to be saved. If you were trusting in Allah to save you, you've got to repent of that and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're trusting in your good works to save you, you've got to repent of that and trust in Jesus, all right? When it comes to salvation, repentance is about do you believe or do you not believe? Once you're saved, though, God wants you to repent of your sins. And you say, well, what does that look like? What does true repentance look like? Here's what it looks like. It means you get, you get right and you make things right. True repentance looks like you get right and you make things right. Notice what uh, Zacchaeus does. He says, the half of my goods I give to the poor and I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore. Notice he gets right. He confesses the fact that, hey, I've not been doing things right. I've been stealing from people. I've been lying about things. He confesses that. He gets right, but then he also makes it right. He actually puts feet to that confession and he gives back fourfold of what he stole and he gives half of his goods. Do you understand that? You say, Pastor Mendes, I'm saved but I'm still living in sin. What should I do? How do I repent? Here's what you do. You get right, 
You confess it. You confess it to God. You confess it to those you've sinned against, to those you've hurt. You get right. You say, is that it? No. Then you make it right. You say, how do you make it right? I, I don't know. I don't know what that means for you, but you find a way to make it right. And I realize sometimes we hurt people, and the only way to make it right is just to say, I'm never going to do that again. But if you've stolen from someone, you give it back fourfold. If, if you've lied about someone, you apologize to them, and then you go and tell everybody else you lied to and say, hey, I was lying about that person. That's how you get right and make it right. Do you understand that? Oh, I've been a gossip. I'm going to get right with God now, so I'm going to start go- stop gossiping. Not enough. Not enough. You get right, and you make it right. You get right, and then you go to all those people you gossiped about, and you said, hey, I was wrong. I was a gossip. I shouldn't have said those things. I'm sorry. That's what true repentance looks like. And by the way, that's why most Christians don't ever actually get right with God. Because getting right with God requires that you get right, and you make it right. You get right, and you make it right. Ephesians 4.28, notice what Zacchaeus, this is Zacchaeus. Let him that stole steal no more. Let him that stole steal no more, no more. But rather let him labor, working with his hands the things which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. That's like the life first for Zacchaeus. He got saved. Why? Because he quit stealing? No, he got saved because the same, the same way everybody gets saved, by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. But then he got right, and then he made it right. And that's the climax. That's the climax of the Christian life. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the story in Zacchaeus. Thank you for this series that we've been able to go through and to just kind of listen in on you and your encounters with people. Lord, I pray you'd help us to have a church filled with people that are saved. Lord, I pray that somebody wouldn't walk away from this building not being saved, that they'd come to a place like this and not understand salvation. Lord, I pray you'd help us to do our best to make sure anybody that walks through these doors, that they understand that salvation is a free gift, is by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, by trusting in him. But then, Lord, I pray you'd also help us to have people that not only got converted, but that they engaged in their salvation. They came to that climax, that completion, to that culmination of their salvation. That they would get their hearts and their life right with you, and that they would not only get right, but that they would make things right. Lord, thank you for Zacchaeus. Thank you for the story you've given us in the Bible. I pray that you'd help us, you'd bless us. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen. I want to encourage you to be back tonight, 6 p.m., for the evening service. It's a different sermon, different text. We're talking about being we're talking about drop dead. And today we're gonna look at the tonight we're gonna look at the story of Uzzah. You remember Uzzah, he reached